Hello. And I can't welcome you to Picture the Scene podcast today because we're not. So I'd like to welcome you to enthusiastically picturing the scene in a somewhat twisted Britain. And why? Because we've got, why have we got an unusually long name this time around? Because today we're bringing you, in my eyes at least, a very special episode. We're joined by Paul from the Evergreen True Crime Enthusiast, Bob from the wonderful but slightly deranged Twisted Britain, along with myself and... Rachel. So hi everyone. Hi. Hi Rachel, Andy. Hi. Good evening all. Thanks for having us along. That's fine. Do you want to, if there's a very unusual situation where no one's heard of either of you two, do you want to introduce your shows and yourself? After you, Paul. Well, thank you very much, Bob. Well, yeah, I'm Paul. I host a show called the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast. And I'm Bob, the slightly um, Wi-Fi inept version of Twisted Britain, it turns out this evening. Um, thanks for having us along, Andy. Um yeah, I suppose anybody that's not heard of Twisted Britain, we're just a podcast that talks about weird shit that's happened before. How about cover us? That does a little bit. I, I for, for the listeners out there, I absolutely love both Paul and Bob and Ali when Ali uh, can be bothered to turn up, which he hasn't done tonight. So we won't hold that <laughs> against him for very long. But he didn't even he didn't even turn up to my fortieth birthday uh, celebrations of the weekend because that's how much of a dick he is. But- Ouch. <laughs> He, he's, always, he's obviously a bit of a dick then. I have to admit, though, I'm trembling more than Henry the Hoover when he hears that the retired priest who adopted him click that lock on the front door. So, <laughs> so welcome all. Out of both of your pods, more than, dare I say it, a bread of substance made in a breville. Wow. wow. Rachel's face, and if you can see it, people, she knows that's, um, that's a serious thing. That is so quite what, a statement. It is, I know. Did Don't you just hold... pass up, Rachel? Did you just fall backwards? I, d- I nearly <laughs> fell off my chair, guys. What's even great about having a, all of you on tonight, in addition to Rachel, obviously, <laughs> is that I get to ask you all the question that I do love to ask once a fortnight. Are we all ready for some true crime? We are. We're always ready for true crime. I don't know how I've ended up here, but I'm ready for it. Good. So today's episode was inspired by, and I have to mention them, so it doesn't seem like I'm plagiarising, it was inspired by True Crime B&B, and in particular episode 24 of theirs. So thanks Beth, Bailey, and Puss. And talking of Puss, Paul, is your fairy friend with you? He's not actually, no. He's downstairs by my fire, because it because it's so cold of a night now. As soon as the fire goes on, that's him. He, he completely abandons the show to, uh, to lie for basking in front of the fire on his... Uh, miraculous round bed so no you won't see him tonight or that's hear him a, that's a shame but i don't blame him if if i wouldn't get done for arson i'd probably set fire to a few things in the evening myself. <laughs> for all of you out there we're each going to be covering a crime so you will see it all linked together hopefully by the end of the show and if not let's just pretend that you do if it's safe for you all to do so i'd like you to relax close your eyes and picture the scene today i'm going to be taking you to Pasai city now, Pasai City is a city in the Philippines, which is part of the larger Metro Manila City. Now, if you think of London, Manchester or LA, with the smaller sub-districts that form the larger city, and that's what this is like. It's only a smaller section. It's one of the smaller sections of Metro Manila, but it still houses a population of over 400,000, and it's largely split into three areas. A suburban area, the main international airport for the region, and also an airbase for the American Air Force, actually, not the Philippine Air Force. And it's also the location, and I have to mention this, of the SM Mall of Asia, which is the largest shopping centre in the Philippines and the third largest in the world. 
and it's something I can testify as I've gotten lost to it many a time. But, and also actually my very first date with my now wife was in the SMO of Asia. We agreed to meet outside Starbucks. I went to one Starbucks, because it's so big, it's got like four or five and she went to a different one. And that's how we, how our relationship started. But enough about that and our shopping habits. I want to take you now to July the 15th, 2019. Now July is a few months into the rainy season. But even when it rains, it's still hot. So the temperature ranged between 27 and 37 degrees Celsius, which is about 18, 99 degrees Fahrenheit, that is. Now, it was raining all day, but it was only a light shower. So you may think that'd be nice with all that heat. But having lived over there, I can tell you that most of the time, even the rain is warm. So you don't get away from the heat. Now, I'd like to introduce you to Glory Chris Coeda. She was 70, sorry, she wasn't 70. She was 27 years old at the time. Thank you, Rachel, for laughing at me. Uh, she was from the city of Cebu, but lived and worked in the capital city. Like so many from that country, she was traveling over there to find work to make a life for them, herself and how people do for themselves. She had two children that were still in Cebu and they lived with family and they lived with family so that she could work and she could send money back to support them so they could eat and go to school. Now, Glory worked as a shop assistant in a local shopping centre. She had a partner called John Ray Gary, who was 30 years old, who she had been with for a few months, roughly, at this point that we're talking about in July. Now, John also worked at the shopping centre, but as a security guard, and this is how they met. And as is the case, quite often people meet people where they work, and that's how they get together. Prior to this day, she had been hearing rumours that her partner had another partner as well, who he's cheating on Glory with. Now, the person he was cheating on Glory with was a man called Raymond Collada, who was known as Mona, and he was 30 years old. Right. Her partner was cheating on her with another man. So who was known it... as Mona. Yes. And you definitely said 30 years old, three zero. Yes. Not Just checking. Not, not 70. No, not 70. No. <laughs> Glad we went that way. <laughs> yes, I'm not 13 either. So this is what Glory had to say about those rumours. And I'm actually quoting her here, so for once I'm not paraphrasing. I had been hearing rumours for a while that John Ray had a gay boyfriend and he was cheating on me. We had a confrontation and he told me that he had broken up with him a few weeks before. While she was not happy at all, she actually agreed to continue the relationship, happy in the knowledge that the affair had ended. Now Glory's partner, even though he told her the affair had ended, he continued to see Mona. And I, I probably need to clarify this. Over in the Philippines, it's quite common uh, for people who uh, are gay to take on a, a feminine name, which is why he called himself Mona. It's I think it must be to do with the fact that it's a deeply Catholic country, so it kind of legitimises the sexuality. Not that they need to legitimise it, but that must be something to do with that. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. So, yeah, so he, he actually, he continued to see Mona. And in fact, he'd actually been seeing Mona before he got with Glory. And his first partner had no idea that Glory existed or he himself was being cheated on because technically he was being cheated on, not Glory. You're looking confused, Rachel. <laughs> I was, Did you just I'm, get a text? No. Somebody, somebody just got a text. I thought Andrew was going to read it. No, that would be a great we, interactive we, show. We a, are we doing a phone in? <laughs> I thought he was just leaning in to like read a text. It, it was glorious. It was just really unfortunate timing, sorry. 
Andy, could you clarify that bit again? Who was, yeah. who was cheating on who here? Well, because he was seeing his boyfriend before Glory, even though neither of them knew about each other, technically his boyfriend was being cheated on because he was a first partner. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that does. I wasn't following the um, the love octagon that was going on here. Lo- love octagon is a fact. Yeah. <laughs> it's the name, of, it's the name of my next sex tape. I'm sorry about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm already, I'm already uh, revoluting you the money right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm laminating your picture again. But um, <laughs> when Morning found out about it, though, he went to the the shopping centre where both Glory and John worked. Now, he told Glory, he found Glory, and he told her that he had some bags with John's possessions in. So, could she collect them from him? Because he didn't want to see John. Now, she agreed to this, so she headed over with him to a back entrance of the shopping centre to collect them. And according to Glory, and I don't see any reason not to believe her version of events here, he started to confess to her, and this is what she said. He even cried to me and he told me how he loves John Ray so much. He said they had been together the whole time I had been dating him. I went to the back entrance with him because he told me he brought some of John Ray's belongings. Wouldn't you agree? This is a pretty odd situation to be in and it's even more strange when the third person in a relationship turns up and starts crying. Very strange. People are strange though, aren't they? Yeah. Solid, solid weekend, though. <laughs> solid weekend. I'm thinking that maybe one day in the future we'll hear about. What? Well, imagine what Ali would bring to a love octagon. I know. Uh, I know. Seven of seven of the eight sides is him. <laughs> I feel I like Ali should be here to defend himself. You'll no, the other one is steampunk. Fuck him, he never turned up. <laughs> as long as he kept his yeah, as long as he kept his cowboy hat on, that'd be fine. <laughs> If this was to end here with a collection of some items, Glory would have nothing more than a few bags of clothes, a strange story to tell her friends and family, and a possibly a desire to re- re-examine her relationship with John. I don't think she'd be telling anyone about No, probably not. But as always, though, this is not going to end here, is it? Because we are a true crime podcast. I was going to say, it feels like if you ended it here, <laughs> we're here on a false premise. <laughs> yes. but yes, we're, we're trying a new spin-off. We are, yeah. You what no. nice stories. <laughs> like, like, like love stories that don't have any kind of happy endings. Late Night Love. Did you ever watch Late Night Love on, uh, not watch it, listen to it on the radio? Listen to it, yeah, with, um, with Graham Torrington. Fabulous show. Oh, that's great. Watch Late Night Love, please. But yeah, let me get let's get back on track so people know Sorry. what we're talking about. Is there a track? <laughs> yeah, possibly. But yeah, like like old true kind podcasters, I'm gonna stick to tradition and instead I'm gonna be the usual harbinger of doom. And I stole that phrase from Paul because I liked it. I heard him say it on one of his pods. When they were close to the back entrance, and this is not a euphemism, but when they were close to the back entrance, Mona reached into his bag. And he pulled out a container and he proceeded to throw it in Glory's face, specifically her eyes. Now, Glory had been the victim of an acid attack or, actually, I need to be fully precise in this, she'd been a victim of an alkali attack, but it still had the same devastating results. Now, Glory would later say this about the attack. I felt my face melting. I couldn't see anything. I just wanted gallons of water to wash my face. It hurt so bad. And later on, the chairman of the iBank Foundation of the, in the Philippines, Drama Domingo Padilla, would confirm it was an alkaline burn, and he had this to say. It was an alkaline burn. 
it is one of the worst injuries that can happen to the eyes. You can get permanent blindness from it because the surface of the eyes will melt. Imagine that your eyes melting. Oh my God. Jesus Christ. Can I, can, I um, can I be the elephant in the room? And sure. go, I obviously, I know that acid and alkalis are different things. And they're on the other end of the rainbow paper. What's it? Litmus paper. That's the bad boys. Um, effectively just going to smash your face to bits no matter which way you go away from seven. Is that, am, I, am I right here? Yeah, as long as it, it's not in the, like, the pH zero zone. Yeah, you're at And, and alkali is going to do the same amount of damage as an acid. Yeah. Yeah, actually, for what I was reading, I didn't include it in the script, but the stronger alkali stuff can actually be worse for an acid attack than acid. Anything like that going in your eyes, though, is yeah, it's game over. You know, my my first thoughts here are are, are obviously like um, you get an alkali in a car battery and things like that. I wonder if it's just a more readily available liquid yeah. um, rather than you know an acid being a, a difficult thing to get ahead of, a hold of, other than squeezing a lemon in somebody's eyes. Um, but I wonder if alkali's maybe been used in this scenario because it's easier to get. Yeah. I don't know. I'd like to say I'm just thinking out loud here. It, it could be, yeah. And Back when these first started, way back when, um, alkali was more common than acid attacks. Don't you worry about that, Andy. We'll get there. That's good to hear. But, so, yeah, for the doctors, however, they did give Glory some hope. They said that she, there was a chance that she would be able to see again if she received a proper care. But this comes with a caveat. This is the Philippines. And you can only receive medical help if you can pay for it. And that wasn't a given. Glory didn't have the money to pay for medical care. Mm. So straight after the attack, Mona fled Manila. Uh. He, went, he went back to the province he originally came from, which was Bicol. Bicol makes some great pie. Usually... I don't know why I included that there. Inappropriate, sorry. But usually... Pie's never inappropriate, Andy. Pie's never inappropriate. Unless you walk away from it with a hole in it. So usually... (laughs) um, Usually if someone does that, there isn't the resources or the desire from the Philippine authorities to seek them. So the person normally gets away with whatever they've done, even if it's murder. If they go out of the province... That's it. But that's it. They stop. They just yeah. stop Because why no is real, that? There's no real connection between the forces, and because it's a poor country, funding-wise, there's no. It, it, it costs too much. But there's a big. So they'll just rack up the death toll across multiple provinces. Doesn't well, that, it's also it's not that uncommon around the world, though. We've got to remember, like we've got a very united police force in the United Kingdom compared to a lot of places. You look at you, you the the. The prevalence of crossing straight line, the state lines in, in America, you can literally get away with. It. You yeah. take the Golden State Killer for a perfect example, literally got away with it for years because he fucked off, didn't he? Um, yes. Good point. Uh, British history is absolutely riddled with it. Before we had a United Police Force in England and, and Scotland, you know the Bow Street Runners were synonymous with taking a, a bribe backhanded, and you could get away with it just by literally running away from. It's sad that there's still parts of the world that are like that, but yeah, it, it doesn't shock me. It, I it, I hate it, but it doesn't shock me. It almost incentivize you to to commit a crime, though, wouldn't it? Knowing that you could dart off afterwards, you know, especially if you're a lover scorned, you're going to. Um... Yeah, you have to remember the Philippines has like I think 110 million people in the country, and it's like 7,000 different islands, and most of them are poor provincial areas. So if you're moving out of a metro area, you're going to live a, a very different lifestyle. But luckily, though. Glory and unluckily for Mona, because this case actually reached worldwide 
attention. It was in Europe, in America, is where it got in the papers. It prompted the national authorities to actually search for Mona, and they arrested him on the 19th of July. Now, the difference between the Philippines and the UK police force is that when the someone gets arrested in the Philippines, if it's a high-profile case, the police actually allow the media to interview a suspect before they've actually interviewed them, but after they've been arrested. That's wild. Yeah. Come on. So, no, it's true. And so, so, and this was no different. They arrested him and they allowed the police to interview him as he was in handcuffs going into the police station after being gone back to Manila. And so this is what Mona had to say about his arrest. So... It's actually a quote from him. You don't see it often. I did something wrong because of him. I even forget my family so I can be with him. I owed a lot of money because of him. I'm really sorry. I can't even sleep at night. You know, he's either saying this because he's been caught. I always think a lot of people are are sorry because they've been caught, not because of what they've actually been, what they've actually done. I think I think to do something like that, you've got to have a few screws loose up in the up in the noggin, haven't you? And so, so you should feel terrible for permanently disfiguring someone like that and what about john he's the naughty boy here as well and he's gotten out of this whole situation unscathed hasn't he yeah from what i could gather he's not with glory anymore but there's no no (laughs) report for him no so for what i can gather it hasn't gone to trial yet and again in the philippines sometimes it can take years or decades for a case to go to trial and in even if it's a, a a minor criminal uh, charge and someone just stays in prison until it goes to trial so um there's been no date set for the trial and it, again it could be years away but uh mona is in prison just awaiting trial and did glory get the medical attention she she needed from what i can gather no she stayed blind oh wow andrew that was real like blinding somebody is yeah yeah, it's unforgivable. And what? So what's the kind of punishment that they're looking for? Will it be what death sentence? Is it? No, no. They were. The Philippines is weird with a death sentence because what it is is they it, it changes. It, it's at some points in its history it's been legal, and over times it's not been legal. But yeah, they 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 very rarely actually do it when it's um even when it's legal. But no, they get they can get years in prison. But what usually happens in the Philippines is. They spend more time away in trial in prison than the actual sentence. But when, but again, when they actually get sentenced, they still have to serve that time. It's not like it's time served. Wow. Is prison actually pre- like is prison actually bad in the Philippines as well? Yeah, you can get like like a hundred, two hundred to a large cell, and there's diseases and uh, basically there's like mini economy in there. So sometimes in some of the prisons, people don't eat unless the family brings food in and stuff like that. So it's not like a British prison, no. But there's gangs and all stuff like that. Um, it's it's yeah. such a it's such a mad thought that these places are literally just holding pens because they don't have yes. they don't have the means to deal with it. It's more that it's I don't. And, and, and you know a lot more than I do, but I would imagine that even if it is the case that they can incarcerate somebody for 20 years because of their crimes or they sentence them to death if the, the law allows it at the time, it's actually, there's money involved in that. Whereas actually just flinging them in a room with a hundred other folk is fucking cheap in comparison, isn't it? Yeah. Which is a horrific thing to think, but you know, that's, it's not human rights we're talking about here, is it? No, it's not human rights, no. And uh, usually actually, as well i shouldn't say this but common knowledge is you can also buy your way out of prison um but yes uh so so this was actually though (coughs) 
uh, acid attacks or alkaline attacks is not an unusual situation in that in the Philippines and so common is it becoming in that country that in 2010 a national program was introduced to try and record these crimes properly and combat them and it would be known as the Anti-Acid Violence, Violence Advocacy Act of 2010. And I just want to finish off with a few stats here. It was interesting to note that the explanation to the Senate, because they have a Senate over there, as to why the act, this act was being brought forward, because they said 80% of the victims of these attacks are female, but 40% of these females are under the age of 18. Oh my gosh. Wow. So kids. Oh. Yeah. It, it, why? Kids attacking why? kids. Mm-hmm. It's so violent though, isn't it? Yeah. It's really violent. It's also really, it's personal, isn't it? Yeah. You have to be in somebody's, like literally in somebody's space to do it. But yeah. you've got to wonder how removed from, like your sense of being, you have to be able to go splash and do it. Like, cause there's, it's not like you're, I don't know, you're thinking kids crying and stuff like that. You obviously you with cyber crime and cyber bullying and things like that these days. Yeah. That's, there's a level of removedness from that. Yeah. If you know what I mean, whereas this is very personal. Yeah, yeah, I mean, definitely. It's a step you can't take back, neither can you? You can't, you can't apologize. Well, you can try and apologize, but you can't really apologize for it. It's, it's done. It's permanent. Yeah, it's just a terrible thing to do. So. And so exposed as well, because you know, like you get stabbed or well, you know, yeah, broken yeah. ribs or punched, whatever. Sometimes that's just like tucked away, isn't it, under under the clothes or, but there. So just to sum up here, can can any of you imagine that? You're so young, you have to adapt to life with such injuries because you're in a country that has no free healthcare, you're in a country that has no social welfare, social welfare system. You literally, if you don't have a rich family, you still have to provide provide for yourself. Can you picture that scene? It's just no, not in the slightest. I'm very fortunate um, to, to have, you know, the national... Health service and here I'll stand up and clap them. <laughs> not Thursday, Bob. It's not Thursday. No, but it's not far off eight o'clock. We'll go with it. It's fine. No, it's it's one of these things like we we talk about in Twisted Britain all the time about how the uh, the prison service in this country isn't isn't what we would love it to be. We talk about how the police forces isn't what we'd love it to be. The health service obviously isn't what we'd love it to be. But then you have to remember at the same time. It's fucking so much better than most other places in the world, and you Compared forget how lucky you are. Just describe them. Yeah, no, it's terrible. Uh, yeah, you've really hurt my head there, Andy. I mean, I'm sorry, Bob. Do we do we, do we have a, an idea of a trial date then? No. I love you too. Thank you. <laughs> no, uh, they, so uh, they maybe they one will come up, but these things we can just basically go in a big queue. Yeah. So and will, no will, you do, will you do us an update if there ever is one? Well, if I've not retired, yeah, I'll I'll give you an update. <laughs> if I ever find one. And it sounds like if you ever want to commit a crime, do it in the Philippines. Not really. Not if you're going to spend could be decades in prison waiting to go to trial. Well, Imagine if no, you're in you just hop, skip, and jump away. That's it. Oh, Gone yeah, by. Yeah. Just nip over. Bye. That's the time. Shoot back. Man, oh, so what kind just... of length is what kind of length is a trial then, Andy? Is it is it like a an hour, two hours? It depends on it depends on the um, if someone's got the money to defend themselves. Oh my god! It also depends on the sounds, publicity. Sounds just like a formality, really. Yeah, yeah it, it, it depends. If they've got the publicity, then it's a big showcase. 
if they've got the money to defend themselves, they probably get off because they can buy themselves out anyway. I'm sounding really bad about the Philippines. I do love the Philippines, but there's not many people tell disagree with me who live there that say that they've got a good system over there. So yeah, no, it's it is pretty much a formality. If you if they think you're guilty, then you're in prison anyway, waiting for trial. And if you can't afford to defend yourself, unless you can categorically like say, look, this is a video of someone else killing a person, for example, then yeah. no, you you got a very slim chance of actually getting away with it. Wow. On That's the, terrifying. Yeah. On the flip side, um, a, a case that I'm looking at at the minute and not part of this episode, but just as a side point, um, in America, they'll um, gather everyone in court. They'll have gone through all of the procedures to get everybody in the room. They will open up like for a hearing and 30 minutes later, Right, okay, um, you know, we're going to close off back here tomorrow, same time. And that could go on for like days and weeks of, you know, these 30 to 45 minute bits in, in America of, of people's time, like that delay trials, like massive. I can't, can't believe it when I was reading about it. That's because it's about money. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> but but before what? we move on to Andy's bit, this has happened. So I have to fix this. Go on, Abba. <laughs> not like I've not held you up enough this evening, sorry. That's fine. I'm going to cut this all the waiting out, but before I do, just to let all our listeners out there know, we're actually in, we're in three different countries here. We're in four different locations, including a pub and a hotel. So if the sound is probably not what you was expecting, give us a little bit of leeway here. We're, we're doing our best. Troopers. Right, okay. Well, it's not just a, a horrific thing that happens in the Philippines either. I'm going to take you back now to the early 1990s and to Bob's home country of Scotland, to the capital city of Edinburgh. Now, there's a lady called Louise Duddy, and today she's the proud mother of two adult sons. She's remarried and she's got a markedly different life from the one that she could have had many years ago. One that she's had to adapt to over the past 30 years. She's slim and tanned, her hands are nicely manicured, She's got a kind nature and an absolutely fabulous sense of humour. Perhaps even today, she's a grandmother. And if she is, then she undoubtedly dotes on her grandchildren. But heartbreakingly, for however much she may love them, Louise will never have been able to see them. She can't because Louise has no eyes to see them with. She was left blind and horribly disfigured, the handiwork of her ex-husband. Ouch. Now, where oh. her left eye should be is just the outline of its socket, and it's just got a tiny sliver of skin and a tiny watery drop like a permanent tear, which is settled in the corner of it. The eyelids of her right eye are fused together. She's got no eyebrows, part of her nose has been melted away, and her lips are burned and blistered. And the tragic story is as follows. Well, before you go there, I just have to say... You sucked me in then. I was quite thinking this sounds like quite a pleasant little story here. I'm horrified. Yeah, it soon takes a turn for the dark, shall we say. I'm starting to wish I hadn't turned my camera on now. I feel a little bit sick. So she's a gorgeous girl from a young age. And I mean, like, by her early teens, she was a beauty queen. She's getting titles after titles for this and even got a job as a part-time model. And then in 1981, when she was 16, like so many girls of her age, she got herself an older boyfriend. 
24-year-old named Gordon Modiak. Now, at first, he's a bit of a bad boy. He's a bit of a, a bit of a general scumbag, really, but shit that attracts him to Louise. And though his tough guy image and his swaggering manner is a bit more him trying to pass himself off as some sort of big shot than pretty much he's an actual short-ass little thug, you know. But it's exciting for Louise. She's got a boyfriend, he's got a car, he's got ready cash. And for a while, it's fair to say they were happy. But he was protective of her shall we say. And at first, she's flattered with this, and she really thinks she's found the man of her dreams. They had a son in 1982, Dean, and they were married later the same year, and everything she thinks is wonderful. But this protective nature continues, and it intensifies. And pretty soon, you can swap protective for possessive. For everywhere she goes, he needs to know where she is, how long she's going to be gone for, he demanded to know. If he didn't like the answer, he wouldn't argue or remonstrate with her. He'd just use violence straight away. He'd regularly, because she was so beautiful, he would regularly, obsessively, falsely accuse her of having affairs with different men, seeing them behind his back. And despite her denying this, because she was devoted to her husband, the beatings would just continue. So he soon began dominating where she could go, who exactly she could see, and he began isolating her from friends and family. You know how these people do. She He's was fully, fully Captain Bellend. Yes, yeah. complete, complete Captain Bellend, yes. And she's so scared of him, of her violent husband, that she's forced to comply with it. Now, every now and again, he would give her the old, oh, I'll never do it again, I'll change my ways, bollocks, you know, all of that. And But then after a short time, the cycle of violence starts up again. Now, it continued like this for the rest of the 1980s, and it got worse. Even at one time, he even stabbed her in the leg and refused to let her go to hospital for medical treatment for it. Wow. Oh, my God. And the boys, I'm guessing, were exposed to this as well? Completely, yes. Yeah. So they even had another son in 1989, right? But once they've had this second son, she starts to get something from somewhere, and by early 1990, after putting up with a, almost a decade of abuse, she finally leaves her husband, and she took the two boys with her. There's no going back to him in her mind, despite his pleas and his threats, and she files for divorce, just finally wanting to be free of him. Now, her solicitor was so horrified after hearing the catalogue of abuse she'd put up with over the past decade that she immediately filed for and was granted a court protective order banning Gordon Modiak from coming anywhere near Louise or the two boys. They were finally divorced in November 1990. The Cree Nice had come through. The kids were in her custody and she finally even managed to enjoy Christmas that year because he was spending the festivities in prison. Short sentence as a result of him breaching the, the appointed court order for her and harassing Louise. Okay? You just can't let it go this way. So he's so blinded with rage that what he sees as his possession, Louise, is now lo no longer so. And he was he became obsessed with the idea that she's an attractive young woman. She's still only 25 years old and she could start a relationship with someone else. So he decided from his prison cell, if I can't have you, I'm going to make sure no one else is having you because I'll make sure no one else wants to. Oh. Coward. And I was just thinking when you were saying that then, the court orders, while they have the best intentions, they're usually not worth the paper they're written on. When people 
obsessed like that, they mean nothing, do they? So by February 1991, Louise and her two sons have moved into the Slateford area of Edinburgh. Now, her husband had only at the beginning of that month been released from this prison sentence for harassing and breaching the court order. And she finally thinks that his time away has given him time to think and give up on all this harassment because he doesn't want to go back to prison again. Now, he was the last thing on her mind on the afternoon of Wednesday, the 13th of February, and she and baby Ryan collected Dean from school. And on the way home, stopped to collect some shopping from the shops in the Hutchinson Parade area of Slateford. And when she was done, only 10 to 15 minutes later, she puts the shopping into the boot of her car. She puts Ryan in his carry seat. And then she loads and fastens her other son in the rear behind the driver's seat. She didn't hear the figure approaching the car, a figure that Dean had seen as he drove down the street some minutes before, a friend of his father's that he knew as Kelvin, and Louise hardly had time to register, even seeing him as she turned around, ready to get into the driver's seat. But Louise was destined to live with that moment for the rest of her life, because without warning, the figure who'd approached the car a 32-year-old unemployed martial artist named Kelvin Greenhall threw a pint beaker of liquid that was filled to the brim full in Louise's face before running away. It took a split second to register, but then Louise screamed in agony and rapidly went straight into shock. The vision had all just gone as soon as the liquid had entered her eyes. Oh, my God. And were the kids both in the car? Yeah, kids are both oh. in the car. It, 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 the, the liquid even hit her oldest son. Oh. Never now, have I wanted somebody to drop a pint more. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. But it, it, if you can imagine, it fused and blistered the skin around her nose and mouth. It scarred her arms, her legs. It ate through her clothes. Oh. It even ate through her tongue. Her t- her oh, tongue. my God. Burned the enamel off her teeth. And she's outside, so she couldn't even probably no. get to water easily even if she was could comprehend that that's what she had to do which well, probably this lady is, is her face is just yeah giving in on itself because that's what a pint of concept concentrated sulfuric acid will do when you throw it in someone so so let me get this right this obviously i think bodies and especially men that, that perform domestic abuse on their partners they're just the ultimate boy bullies and cowards but it was that much of a coward that he couldn't even do this himself. No, he couldn't. He was there. He was there watching. He was there watching. Yeah. He was watching. He was watching. Yeah, he got to do it. Oh. Watching from around the corner. That's the worst voyeurism you can ever imagine. Like, it's terrible. It's terrible. as you say, as you say, Andy, the, the cowardliness that goes with that is unreal. We talked briefly about um, being up in somebody's face and doing it but this is the complete opposite of that mm. that's putting somebody else in the position where they have to be in somebody's face to do it twisted beyond belief it's 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 really horrible like really horrible so straight away obviously when she got to age she was rushed to hospital for treatment and all that and police started to what they were looking at doing a murder inquiry so badly she was she was injured wow. and straight away they've got the prime suspect is her ex-husband because he'd only been released eight days before. Now, two days later, they managed to trace him and he attempted suicide by swallowing two grams of heroin that he had concealed upon him, following following him writing this bleating suicide note where he begged forgiveness for what he'd done. 
saying in it that death was the only way to end the terrible situation for him. Now he was now he was saved, his life was saved, and once he was arrested on suspicion of this, he soon admitted hiring someone to do it. However, and this is quite sickening to hear, right? He claimed that he felt sick at the thought that Louise had been so badly injured when all he wanted her to have was, and I quote this, a wee boon. What? Oh, God. Yeah. And do you know what, as well, just to add insult to injury, I bet he paid that Kelvin guy pittance at like 150 quid or something. Oh, or a stash of drugs. Like, it, it wouldn't have even been like the price of her like life, her livelihood. You know, it would have been for fuck all, basically. It definitely. I'd imagine unemployed martial artists equates to a person who never will or want to work. No, pr- pretty much, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Apologies for any arrested. unemployed martial artists that listen to this podcast. Just as long as they... You don't, you don't want to piss off any unemployed martial artists. No, just absolutely not. There. They've got a lot of time and a lot of expertise. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, a lot of throwing stars and shit. So they were both arrested. This Modiac and Kelvin Greenhall were arrested the same day and both denied all responsibility. They were both charged for the attack on Louise and Greenhall also faced charges of theft of a container for acid and theft of obtaining the acid by fraud from an Armadale jeweller, which is, I mean, they must use it to clean jewels, wasn't they, or something? Yeah. So they were then remanded to await trial. Now they came to trial in June 1991. Kelvin Greenall pleaded not guilty to the charges that he faced, but Modiac at the previous day admitted everything and sentence for him was deferred following the completion of the trial. Now the first witness to give evidence was Louise Duddy and she stood in the witness box for 40 minutes. How brave must that have been today? Absolutely. She showed the court what had been inflicted upon her. She told them of the endless months that she'd spent in hospital and the failed skin graft after failed skin graft that had tried to repair her face to that and the battle to save her sight that was just losing. When when she testified in court, at that point, she couldn't distinguish anything more than a faint chink of light. And despite being seen by some of the top eye specialists in the country... And having grafts to her eyes, there was nothing further that they could do from preventing her sight from debilitating. And she's now, today, completely blind. You've also got to think that, obviously, everything she went for is horrible. But then also her children would have been without their mother for months. And obviously, maybe with friends or family, but it's not the same as not being with your mum. And they would have witnessed that, so... They see their mum go through that, and then suddenly, while they can probably visit her, there's like, well, why can't I be with mummy? Well, you you got to be thankful that, that say, that Ryan was the age that he was. Yeah, true. You know, he was a toddler, but but the, the other lad was, I think he was not seven or nine. No, he was nine. That's got to be the worst thing that you've ever seen in your life, hasn't it? Yeah, I would remember that vividly, especially because it burns him too. And it was his dad's yeah, alt and, and, lake, and, and, just to add insult to injury. Yeah, he'd even, he the little boy even gave evidence himself at court, and he described oh. the acid hitting his face. He spent a month in hospital recovering from it himself, and he had a foot. He was left with a four-inch scar on the side of his face. 
Wow. Paul, what age did you say he was when this happened? Sorry. The, the little boy, uh, he was nine, Bob. So he's in his, what, 30s now? Yeah. Yeah. And he, he was 1991 and he was nine. So he'll be 40 now. Yeah. So he's, I mean, he's, he's lived with a scar, mm-hmm. with scars on his face and scars in his mind yeah. for Someone's, you know, three quarters of his life so far. And I would imagine, and I don't like to speak for people, but I would imagine that's had a fucking impact on your life. That changes the, the direction you're going forever, doesn't it? Definitely. I mean, some people who meet him are going to ask, oh, you, you know, how did you get that four-inch scar on your face? And he's going to say, oh, yeah, my dad set someone up to just also, with acid. Also, no. the constant reminder that your own mum can't see her grandchildren, like, and get to, you know, watch them. I mean, fair enough, at least she's here, but that that's just the permanent reminder, just just on top of that. When your reflection is your reminder, it's a fucking terrible place to be, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So the guy who'd thrown the acid, he claimed that he'd just been paid to act as a driver and knew nothing about the attack until he read it the following day. He thought they were going looking for the car of someone who had ripped off this golden Modiac. And when they spotted the car, he got it was Modiac who got out of the car and Greenall had picked him up. Then in the early hours of the following day, he'd arrived at Greenall's house and threatened him and his partner, saying that, They'd be shot if they spoke against him, claiming it would just take one phone call to do it. Now, they believe this guy's a nasty piece of work. They think, yeah, they do this. Greenall claimed that he'd scuffled with him, calling him a filthy scumbag and a sick bastard, but he'd ultimately been forced to comply, saying, I never had a choice. It was either do it or get shot. Spineless. Well, the senior investigating officer told a different story when he gave evidence and saying that during an interview, this Greenall had first denied it, but after having a cup of tea and a couple of fags, he'd soon made a voluntary statement saying that Modiac had come to his home and offered him £3,000, as well as a £100 to hire a getaway car and complete with this jar of acid that he claimed had come out of a car battery and that he told to throw in Louise's face, claiming it would just give her a small burn. Because Louise was seeing other men, and she'd put him in jail. So after this nine-day trial, it took the jury less than an hour to deliver a unanimous verdict of guilty of all charges. And they got 20 years each for the attack. Both of them appealed the length of the sentence, but each appeal, I'm sure you'll be pleased to know, was dismissed the same way. Now, as a bit of like sort of wrapping it up, by 10 years later, Louise had moved on with her life and she'd found new love. She's married to a guy named Duncan Reed today. And, you know, he was, after four months, they had a whirlwind courtship, totally happy, absolutely fabulous. But in January 2003, and bearing in mind, Modiac's been in Nick for 12 years by this time, the Sunday Mail newspaper reported that he'd paid a burglar £150 to trace Louise and take photographs of her house. Oh, my God. Well, this, so this burglar had just pocketed the cash and made no attempt to do it. He gave <laughs> a sort of interview to the Sunday Mail and said he's a complete scumbag, this Modiac is, but he's obsessed with Louise. Now, in November 2004, Modiac was released and he immediately got on a train to England because he had fears that a contract had been put out on his life. 
Now, nobody found him, but the press managed to find him and he told them, I'll have to quote this, he said, I only want to get on with my life. I'm out of prison now, but I'm still trapped. I'm made out as this monster. I've been portrayed as a nasty person, but it's not true. I want to leave it behind. I got time for a horrific thing, but it's in the past, right? This is how in the past it was. In March 2013, he was living in Blackpool and he'd spent the evening drinking at a bar on Talbot Road. Now, whilst he was outside the venue, he's very heavily drunk and smoking a cigarette. And the, and the Romanian bouncer on the door, a man called Daniel Ursoy, asks him to move away. So Modiak left. But before he left, he spat at the bouncer, calling him a foreigner. And 90 minutes later, he returned in what was later deemed a disguise. He'd gone home to change his clothes. He'd put a hat on. Oh, my God. The TV shows him walking past the entrance of the bar, sizes up this bouncer. And then he doubles back and pulls out a blade and lunged at him. Well, thankfully, the knife avoided cutting him and it just ripped his sleeve. In November 2013, he was convicted of attempted grievous bodily harm with intent and possession of a bladed article. And bizarrely, he claimed he'd only pretended to stab the bouncer in order to draw attention to his continuing grievance over his conviction oh. for a attack in the 1990s. Well, this time, good news, he was sentenced to life imprisonment and he remains a serving prisoner to this day. Great. And, and how could he even try and portray himself as a victim? It, well, yeah. that's what these people do, don't they? They, yeah. they see themselves as a victim. He sees himself as the cheated-on husband, the, the one who's like, oh, I've done everything for you for this and this is how you repay me that's what these people see they don't see normally do they yeah it's true it's just... knife attacks must run in their family because in july 2018 his nephew gary modiak slashed someone across the face and left them for dead in in an edinburgh pub he got eight years for slashing someone who needed 10 pints of blood to save his life oh my god left with substantial wounds he spent four months off work he's now affected with stress anxiety depression and he needs constant plastic surgery for his injuries now there are photos of, of this available there are photos of louise available after the attack and there are photos of this guy that modiak's nephew has attacked and the wounds are horrific i'm i mean louise is just you can't even begin to comprehend someone can do that to someone but his nephew as well. I mean, this poor, poor fella has a massive slash mark across his this, face. He could have easily been killed, easily. This guy's just out for violence, isn't he? Like, obviously his nephew too, but he's he's just looking for trouble. You know, those kind of people that, you know, kind of say, you, you're looking at me funny um, when, you know, you're in a public space or something. You're like, wow, you're, you're just trying to draw attention to something. And gosh, absolutely awful. What a horrible man. Horrible I, it, I agree, absolutely horrible man. And and before we go any further, I, I have a picture in my head of him having the plastic glasses and fake nose on as his disguise. He was that <laughs> fucking clever. Um, Marks, uh, the, the one you get out of the pound land just for a laugh. Um, <laughs> you, you've got to wonder about the level of mental stability there. There's, there's got to be a level of absolute... Like, mental health can be used as an excuse for some things. And I hate saying that because... 
mental health is, is a horrible issue and it has been something that as a society we've had to deal with a huge amount over the last couple of years. However, where is your brain in that process? Where is the thought process that says, I'm the victim here when you're clearly just a, and it's not my podcast, so I won't say the word I was going to, but you know what I mean? It just, it baffles me. And and we've, we've talked about um, putting questions like this to um, psychologists before, and we're lucky to know a forensic psychologist reasonably well through podcasting. But it's one of these ones that that's the sort of thing I'd like to go to somebody and go, how does a human being do that? Mm. Like, because you know we are all four different people here, and we've you know we, we've met through podcasting, obviously, but not one of us is capable of doing that. And I just wonder where the human psyche has to be to be capable of all of these things. And it's actually oh, that, was, that was a scary. bit of a rant. There we are. <laughs> I find it quite scary to go down that rabbit hole sometime and wonder what somebody's headspace has to be to go there. But I think this guy, for the fact that he has tried to claim that he was the victim in all of this is just your classic gaslighter and he's you know not been able to gaslight his wife so he's trying to gaslight you know everyone around him and and just believe that in his head um you know if somebody hadn't done wrong to him he wouldn't have had to commit the crime it's almost like he's gaslighting society and the structures around him yes bob fuck him what a whopper (laughs) so the other guy so just tying it up, so the other guy, Greenhorn, when he'd actually thrown the acid, he was released in 2005 and he returned to the Edinburgh area where he began selling drugs from his high-rise flat. Now, he got done for it in 2018 and being a drug user, he received a 12-month drug testing treatment order from someone called Sheriff Frank Crow, which is one of the greatest names that I've ever <laughs> Now, he was What's his address, Paul? Just I'm in Edinburgh this week. What's the best? <laughs> <laughs> so, so he's uh, he was due in court for a review with this order, but he re- he failed to appear. And further investigation found his flat to be boarded up following it being raided a few times. To quote a neighbour of his, local rumour has it that Greenall is now on the run somewhere from a dangerous drug gang after crossing them. So. It's not something that you will think will end really well, that, is it? No, I mean, no. I, I, I always... Do any sympathy for him or either of the bloody Modiacs? No, no I, I, I think that, you know, it's been many years since I've played a game of chase, but let's hope that um, let's hope that his game of chase ends with him getting found. Eh? Will you play a game of chase with me at CrimeCon next year? I will. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> There may be a skull fan somewhere. I feel like, yeah, he's he's not going to be too long for this world, is he? No, the shadows that follow him around will be quite something, I would imagine. Yeah. Is that a ghost reference? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, sorry, I've just had a message of Ali. See, apologising for not being there. It's okay. Ali, I'm going to leave that in and, you know. I think you all owe Ali an apology now, guys. No, I've just read the whole message. We own fuck all. Yeah. Um, uh, Paul, these that's one of the ones that when, when we get to the end of it, and Ali does this to me often as well, and he goes, I've got a good one for you. And then he tells me a case, and at the end of it, I go, that's not a good one. That was full of arseholes. But it's also one of those ones that, because it's so recent, that you have to think, 
this shit happens all the time. And like Slateford, I know Slateford, it's, it's not a bad area of Edinburgh. Um, one one of my best mates and his wife uh, lived there for years and years in, in a lovely flat and one of the best 24-hour bakers I've ever been to. What was ringing for me there was the whole point was like, it wasn't in, I, I hate to put, it wasn't in the Leith area of Edinburgh or the Dumby Dykes or, or Nidri, which are synonymous with being the worst parts. Slateford's quite nice. Um, and that's, it shouldn't be shocking, as I say, because these things can happen anywhere, but it just really rings that, like, I literally will be driving past that tomorrow on my way to work. Well, and I guess if anyone ever, ever is in the area, you know that they've got a good a good couple of master bakers there. Good good master bakers. What, if you look for a boarded up flat, you can get your drugs. Um, and if your car actually runs out of acid, you're probably all right. Um, Close to the line there, Bob. Go on. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't do far away from the line, Andy. You know that. Um, <laughs> These are not things that are like acid attacks or things that are in the news a, a fair amount in, in recent history. And, and, and I think we've probably put that down to a wonderful uh, rolling news cycle. You know, 24 hour news has got a lot to answer for and a lot of problems with it as well. So we, we tend to hear more about acid attacks these days, but it's certainly not something that's new. The, the, the history of um, acid attacks goes way, way, way back in British history. And what I've done this evening for my part, if I may move us on, is I've not looked at a specific case as such. I'm going to tell you about a couple of different people that things have happened to, but I'd like to tell you about vitriol throwing. And vitriol throwing is essentially, and I will quote a judge from the 1890s, saying, short of murder, this is one of the most dastardly and inhumane offences that anyone can partake in. So what is vitriol throwing? It's essentially what we call acid attacks these days. It's defined in the dictionary as, um, vitriol essentially defined in the dictionary as the old fashioned name for one of the most dangerous chemicals you can ever find, sulfuric acid. Now, Paul, you mentioned sulfuric acid already, but just so that people know kind of what we're talking about, it's a clear, colorless, maybe with a touch of tan in it, dense, oily, corrosive liquid liquid now the oily corrosive part is the bit that's really terrifying there it sticks and it burns um and can be transported without much of an issue you both talked about people using it in um in jars and in glasses what it won't burn a glass and doesn't look any different to possibly just a shite glass of water from a dodgy pub um it's going to do some really really horrible things to you it was really widely available in Scotland in the 1700s to 1800s because it was used as a supplement in sour milk instead of citric acid. It was used in the textile bleaching industry where they were dying, essentially dying linen and cotton to take the impurities out of it to kind of turn it as white as we possibly can. So, Bob, um, just let me cut you off before you carry on. I knew about the textile thing. People voluntarily drank this. In its, not by the pint, shall we say, it was used as, it was used in a way of um, keeping things like soured milk and, and citric acid it would have been used in very small quantities. You're not, you're not having a, you're not having a glass of sour milk before your bed. Um, un- unless you've been in the settle for far too long and you've not checked the dates on the stuff when you get home to the fridge. Not saying it's happened, but it, it, it's out there. So, sorry to interrupt, Bob. I used to work with a fella 
who used to bring milk into work and he would leave it out on the unit for about two to three days because he liked it and it was just going on the turn of he's like, a killer did he, he become he, a murderer he, he yeah he's absolutely a killer rachel i agree he's like that no problem that's he, psychopathic behavior that just just unreal he's one of the craziest people i've ever met in my life. i'm not saying something <laughs> do you remember when you was at Rachel's not old enough for this? Would you remember when you was at school and you was a kid and you got the three little milk bottles? Yeah. And then in the afternoon, if you were super lucky, you could have an extra one that was really warm and horrible because there were some <laughs> left over. That two to two or three days later, yeah, this guy's definitely got bodies in his bathtub and heads in his fridge. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm all right with you leaving it out for an hour, Andy. I think I'm, I'm starting to worry about you as well. Just to clarify, guys, I'm not that young. I do remember milk bottles at school. I'm trying to you do look it, darling. There you are. You do look. Oh, you're too kind, Bob. <laughs> I've got my video off. It's fine. Because <laughs> we don't want to see what Bob's doing right now. No, I've got my jacket on. It's really cold. Just to give everybody who's listening, if you leave this in, Andy, I'm sitting in the cellar of the pub where we normally record because there's a mad party going on outside that I hope you can't hear, but I, I can hear it. Um, and it's freezing in here uh we're at minus one currently in the cellar but we're fine don't you worry i've got my jacket on i've got a pint we love you for it bob so we'll, we'll come back to the, the kind of scottish textile industry and i'm using the scottish textile industry specifically because it was where a lot of um the first vitriol throwing and acid attacks as we're now calling them started to happen We've heard about the two cases you guys are talking about, both of them horrific and both of them far, far too modern for me to read about because it makes me sad that these people are still alive. That's why I asked you about it, Paul. I'd like you to take you back to Victorian Britain. And at this time, vitriol throwing at the time was not a capital offence. It wasn't something that was deemed as an attack on somebody because it was so rarely done. It isn't until we get to the late 1800s, somewhere around the 1880s, we start to see it being used on people and usually in a twisted nature of human revenge and linked with jealousy. And I think that's probably evident in the two cases that you guys have talked about today. I think we could probably boil that down to jealousy in, in, in a way, both of them. Definitely. So vitriol has its origins in an industrial protest. So acid attacks were first used in industrial processes in Glasgow and as far back as the linen and fabric trades as I could find, Sulfuric acid was used as it's incredibly strong acid and can be used in the destruction of property. So some of the examples I found of this while reading were not, not what I would expect to find when I sat down and looked at historical acid cases. You know, you would think the first thing that would jump out at you was um, Jane Smith was burned by her husband or anything. But actually, a lot of the destruction that you, was done using sulfuric acid was because of importation. The removing of the textile industry in Glasgow was a huge thing at the time. You think Paisley Pattern, you think that whole part of Scotland built its money on fabrics. Um, so when the importation started happening of cheap fabrics from around the world, I don't actually know where they would have been coming from, apologies for that. That pisses off a workforce. And when you've got a pissed off workforce, that have an acid that's, let's not go with, it's not that difficult to get a hold of. It doesn't take too much of a stretch of the imagination to move from, here, I've got this stuff that can burn that and we want rid of it, 
it's not much of a surprise that it was used in the destruction of the imports. Now, as you can imagine, that's not seen as a good thing for the progression of industry, but at the same time, these people were literally living their lives off the money that they were making day to day, and it was being taken away from them. But it does take a lot to get from uh, destroying stock, essentially, to destroying another human being's face. Now, even for Twisted Britain, we're going to go back a bit in history. And um, we normally talk about crimes from the 1800s. That's mine and Ali's bag. We love the 1800s. But we're going to go back to the late 1700s. But as I said earlier, it wasn't treated as a capital offence at this point. It was, in fact, dealt with under the crimes against property law that had been in place since about the 1750s. It's not really until we get to about 1820 that we start to see a record of, a record of crime against people. And not in the same way as we would think about today, not in the same way as we've talked about this evening, and certainly not in the way that I would imagine listeners picture acid being used. One example I found was of the trial of Elizabeth Rack, who was tried at the Old Bailey, which Paul and I both visited uh, a couple of years ago when we were down. And the throwing of vitriol that happened on that day was the dresses of two prostitutes. They had used it to, to basically stop them looking their best, I suppose is the easiest way of putting it. Wow. Yeah, I don't think it takes much stretch of the imagination to know that these prostitutes probably didn't make as much money after when their bodies weren't quite what they were before. I'm treading my line quite carefully here, shall I say. And that was one of the first specific cases in court records and in the British newspaper archives, which I'll always talk about, the British newspaper archives, one of the blessed resources on the internet. Love oh, certainly it. certainly. Yeah, I love it too, yeah. Um, and this is one of the first cases that I could find of an actual personal attack on a human being was Elizabeth Rack. And she was found she was found guilty in the first place, but her case was acquitted at the end. She didn't serve any time for what she did because the people that she was attacking weren't they weren't gentry, they weren't people in the street, they were prostitutes. They were what do we say? We say women of the night. Shall, um, and so they weren't seen as an, a, a, an even par with everybody else, which I found absolutely fucking horrific. But we'll move, we'll move on from there. Personal attacks of that variety were quite rare in the uh, early part of the 1800s. But in the second half of the 1800s, if you looked at the newspaper archives for just acid or vitriol, specifically vitriol attacks, Hundreds, maybe wow. maybe thousands in the decades towards the end of the 1800s. Wow. Oh. The, ni- the 19th century sees a massive ramp in this thing. It seems to have been literally a case of somebody has suddenly realised how damaging this liquid is and how easy it is to do. I think that goes to show <laughs> that, like anything that humans touch, once we realise that it can be used for... So basically, yeah, evil, then they use it for evil, don't they? Whatever it is. Can I just say as well, from a diversity perspective, good shout, Bob, on adding in the first ever like recorded attack being a woman, um, causing the... Uh... But, but on women, though. What? Yeah, what, what, I, women... what I would say on that part, just literally following off from what you're saying, Rachel, most of the early cases, like I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of cases, most of them were women perpetrators mm. but we we talk about um, when you think about women in history in crime specifics you go down the line of black widows and poisoners and stuff now i love 
a female poisoner case. It's one of those things that... Um, wow. No, I, I do. Because usually because it's so easy to get a hold of the substance that they're using. You can literally, in, in Glasgow, you used to be able to find examples of people just signing out poisons say they were using them for for rats or dogs or cats or whatever it happened to be and as long as you signed a bit of paper that says nah nah not gonna kill my husband but this don't worry about it you could literally take as much as you want and because the records weren't amalgamated in any way you could go to several different chemists or pharmacies and build up what was i mean most of the times arsenic or something like that which is famously a poison that you don't have to give a huge amount to somebody. You can drip feed them it and it builds up in the, in the body and then ends up killing them. This seems to be one of those things as well. The textile industry would have been mainly women that worked in it. Somebody smacking something in the background. Well, that's what happens when, you pull up, when you're sitting in a cellar. That's what happens when you're pulling a pint. It clicks. It's really fucking annoying, isn't it? No, that's oh, Bob okay. drip feeding arsenic to someone. <laughs> tended to be women that worked in these industries. And I suppose that they, they would be the people that would have access to the chemicals now not making that assumption that they were then the perpetrators but as we said earlier it, it was tended to be jealousy that happened and and without sounding too sexist the jealousy tended to run on the female side i'll go on to give you an example from my readings in a moment if you would like me to of course the specifics of a lot of these crimes weren't recorded because of the time frame that we're talking about they were either um graphicized in, in in the newspaper articles which i would highly recommend people to look up if you look up vitriol throwing some of the the the, the pictures and the, the artist's impressions are quite incredible as they always are from this kind of time frame i would suggest however that as andy uh, alluded to the availability of a deadly substance and people just being people is what led to a rise in it. No, I say it almost does seem like it was a growing trend, doesn't it? I can I can see what you mean there, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've just had a quick look while you were said that, so I was interested. It's interesting that from like 1801, the UK population was 8.2 million, and by 1901, it was 30 million, so that's a massive increase in 100 years, so that probably also played a part. It's, an easy, like you say, an easy thing to get hold of, and you, there'd be more fighting for resources, and... One of those resources, without wanting to sound sexist, for women at that time would have been their looks, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, that's where we go. We go back to arsenic again, and I hate to take us away from the topic of the evening, but arsenic was used as a as a skin bleaching, and and that's why it was often um, associated with women in crime because it was easy for them to get to because it was essentially a cosmetic. The boom in population has a huge thing to do with this as well, I, I suppose, and it's not something that I, I looked into too much, but I, as you bring it up. We're not quite industrial revolution at this point, but we are looking at the import industry de- destroying lives in, 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 in not a small way. And with the more people becomes more resource needed, more, less jobs available. And these all things that roll into one, I'm excusing nobody here. The notoriety of these cases were so much that it even appeared in um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes. In the adventures of an illustrious client, Baron Gunner had vitriol thrown his face by his former mistress, Kitty Winter. So the fact that it has reached the point where it's being used in the Sherlock Holmes stories shows how prominent in society it was. I'll give you an example of one of the ones I read about. I could go on for hours and hours about these because, as as you know, I, I like my historical cases. But I'll give you one 
uh, Ellen Bevan. So this case was from 1885 when Ellen was 36 years old and she was a woman absolutely wrecked by jealousy. She had convinced herself that her victim, a Mrs. Jane Strother, was having an awfully sordid affair with her husband after Jane Strother had lost her man. And I mean lost him. He died. Whether it's true or not, no, it is true that he died. Whether it's true that they were having a sordid affair doesn't actually matter to me. It's completely beside the point. And I'm going to add my thoughts in here. I don't think that she was. I think that Ellen was absolutely... <coughs> she's lost the plot a bit and was looking for a reason to attack this woman. We learn that Ellen is beyond the point of reason. And we learn this in her case records because she purchases the acid three weeks prior to the attack and spends those three weeks planning what she's going to do with them. The planning does not go well because for me, now I've never sat down and thought about planning an acid attack. I'd like to stress that point before we go any further. Good. But if I was going to do it, I wouldn't do it in broad daylight on a street in Dudley in front of hundreds of folk. Also in front of Mrs. Struthers' daughter, who, in a solid hero move, attacked Ellen Brennan with her umbrella, looking out for her mum. Now, I love that. This girl was eight or nine years old at the time and went to town with her umbrella on her mother's attacker. Fucking hero of a girl. I would love it if she managed to pop it up and defend her. Unfortunately, she did not get a chance to use it as a force field because Mrs. Strother suffered some horrific injuries, including permanent scarring to her face. And she became completely blinded by the attack. In what you could say was a moment of almost just desserts, however, Ellen Brevin was also herself burned and nearly lost one of her eyes when the splashback hit her. Take that, you bitch. <laughs> Ellen Brevin was, of course, found guilty of this crime. It's not difficult to be found guilty of a crime when hundreds of folks saw you do it. And she was sentenced to seven years penal servitude. Now, Ali is not here, so I will laugh at the word penal servitude to save all of you. <laughs> the extent of the injuries to Mrs. Strother were so bad that a doctor remarked, and now this is a kind of bitty quote, but these are bits and pieces of quotes from Dr. Warden. One eye was sloughed away and the other gone. Sorry, what did you say about sloughed? Sloughed. Good word. It's a great word. What, what yeah. does it mean? It's just Good. gone. Go, um, nearly gone. Soup in a socket, shall we go? Wow. Um, wow. And the other one, completely gone. She had suffered effects of corrosive fluid having been flung on her face, head and neck. The right eye was the worst and the and destruction was ongoing. The effect on Mrs. Strother was to produce ulcers on the head, severe burns on the neck with an abscess. She would be disfigured for life. The right eye had perished. The left eye was so injured that the woman would be perfectly blind. So you're basically saying her eye melted away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it ran down the side of her face. Wow. Oh, mm. I, I feel I, like it's... It's just gotten worse and worse tonight in terms of describing the the after effects of an acid attack. You're welcome. Um, this was also this was really difficult for me to read. Actually, eyes are the one thing that I really can't do. 
And when you said, Andy, we're going to talk about acid attacks, I went, how can I do this without seeing her eye melted? So thanks for Googling that and making sure we had to see her eye melted. That was really good of you. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. As I said earlier, I think it's fair to say that the ease of attaining a liquid of this destruction plays a massive part in the upsurge and the attacks. We don't actually see a downturn in the jealousy-related attacks until the regulation of the fluids in around about 1940. Sulfuric acid was pretty much available to anyone until the Second World War. And thankfully now it's, it's part of a controlled, uh, controlled fluid um, legislation. But, uh, you know, as we've said before, 1940s isn't that long ago. It's, it's, it's you know, within the generational reach that we still live in. And that yeah. really is terrifying. And that, that was my look into the historical versions of acid attacks. My, my takeaways from them, if I may, is vitriol throwing is a much, much nicer way of putting acid attack. And it is one of those crimes that we've looked into, that certainly I've looked into, that is mainly female perpetrators. And that is rare when we start talking about true crime. That is rare, yeah. And there's a brief history on acid attacks from the 1800s. So there we have it, everyone. We can say that it doesn't matter when in history or where you are now you never know if you can be safe from someone wanting to get up close and personal and and do you some serious damage so i'm going to wrap up uh if no one has anything else to to comment i feel like we've been on here about 12 and a half hours so <laughs> not, not gonna lie i was just gonna say but it's 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 actually topical today i was i i heard on the news that you know katie piper is a famous victim of an acid attack isn't she yeah and her attacker is now on the run he's wanted for recall to prison oh wow oh yeah i saw that i, I, I didn't read it actually i saw it on your twitter feed right i, I thought that I very timely it. yeah i saw it in your twitter feed and i thought that must be what he's going to talk about but um but no it's just coincidence it was, actually, it was actually i was watching last night on the primary investigation channel there was a there was a case about an acid attack that I covered on my show about two years ago. His name is Andreas Christophers. If you read that story. That's a great name. It's a great name. It's a great name. It was a case of mistaken identity. Wow. Yeah. It's Can't take that back. Story and it's ruined the poor guy's life, you know, but for, for a case of mistaken identity. Awful. So, everyone, thank you for listening to enthusiastically picturing a scene in a somewhat twisted Britain. We have been myself, Andy. Myself, Paul, the true crime enthusiast. And I'm half of Twisted Britain, so I'm Twisted I'm Bob. Next time we'll get Ali on, I promise. Yeah. And me, Rachel. And if you haven't listened to Twisted Britain or the True Crime Enthusiast. I'm not quite sure how you found me because I think I just steer all their listeners, but give them a Google, you'll find them easily enough. And if you're finding me because of these two, then awesome. Give us a listen, why not? And don't hate us too much. So thank you, everyone, and goodbye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.